Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I'm going to take on an aspect of a biblical worldview, or let's say a biblical cosmology, in relation to politics and law that is seldom if ever discussed. And it may be very encouraging to a number of you to have what you already believe reaffirmed. For many of you, it'll be like coming out of the left field with something that, as I said, is just not very often talked about when we think about biblical worldview or even cosmology, as I've been describing it the last several weeks. Cosmology, again, being simply the the study uh, or an inquiry into what is the nature of the universe in which we live what kind of place is this and what's it for and how do we use it or how is it to be used that's what cosmology is so i want to begin with a quote from herman bavink in volume 2 of his reformed dogmatics Move to a quote from William Blackstone, move to the United States Constitution, and then move to a quote from the United States Supreme Court that may blow your mind to drive home the importance of today's topic. And in just giving you these quotes, you'll see where the topic is going to go today. So let me begin with what Bavink writes. Among rational and moral creatures, all higher life takes the form of a covenant. Generally, a covenant is an agreement between persons who voluntarily obligate and bind themselves to each other for the purpose of fending off an evil or obtaining a good. Such an agreement, whether it's made tacitly or defined in explicit detail, is the usual form in terms of which humans live and work together. Love, friendship, marriage, as well as all social cooperation in business, industry, science, art, and so forth, is ultimately grounded in a covenant. That is, in the reciprocal fidelity and an assortment of generally recognized moral obligations. Okay, that's Bavink writing in the early 1800s. Prior to him was William Blackstone, the great commentator on the common law of England, who the United States Supreme Court regularly cites as authority for what the meaning of the words in the Constitution is, um, because they're derived from the common law. And this is what Blackstone says, for example, about deeds. So when you buy a house, you know, you, you have a deed. And Blackstone writes as follows. After warrants, which is simply the statements that I warrant that I own this piece of property, you warrant that you have the capacity to purchase it or own it, he says, usually follow covenants or conventions, which are clauses of agreement contained in a deed 
whereby either party may stipulate for the truth of certain facts or may bind himself to perform or give something to the other. And of course, that's generally, I warrant I own this property. You warrant that you have money to buy the property and you have the right to buy the property. And so I'll sell you the property. You'll give me the money. And so he's acknowledging there that in the everyday course of human interaction, where property is being bought and sold, we're operating in terms of covenants. Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. Notice what it says. No state shall dot, 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 pass any dot, 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 law impairing the obligation of contracts. Now, that's very interesting right there, because as I've said, if you don't understand common law, you won't understand the Constitution. And that statement is not saying that you have a right to contract. The right to contract exists independent of the Constitution. It's found in the common law, but you can't impair the obligation of contracts. In other words, when we make contracts and covenants, the state should not impair the obligations of them. Now, that doesn't mean that every contract is, is valid and enforceable. You can't have a contract for murder, for hire, for example. But if there is a valid contract, which we all have the right to contract, then the state should not pass an, a, a law impairing the obligations of that lawfully entered into contract. And then lastly, I want to quote to you from the very last paragraph of the Supreme Court's infamous decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which in 1992 uh, upheld the right to abortion that had been found in Roe versus Wade in 1973. And of course, the holding in those cases, the specific holding, for example, that you can't enforce this type of law, that's been reversed by the Dobbs decision last year. But the analysis is still there that can be employed in the right context to support other things. And here is how the court concluded the decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Our Constitution is a covenant running from the first generation of Americans to us and then to future generations. It is a coherent succession. Each generation must learn anew that the Constitution's written terms embody ideas and aspirations that must survive more ages than one. We must accept our responsibility not to retreat from interpreting the full meaning of the covenant in light of all our precedents. Now, let me just comment on this before I go any further here. This is a most paradoxical statement because the court has retreated from all of its precedents, mainly because Christians have lost the understanding of the common law that's used throughout the history of the Supreme Court and refused to use it. So the Supreme Court has been allowed to get away with not using all of its precedents, which is our bad. Um, and, and, and we've accepted that, and, and we're still accepting it. But the point is, the Supreme Court sees the Constitution as a, as a form of a covenant, and like covenants in the Bible, they run to succeeding generations.
talks about to a thousand generations. The Lord is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant to a thousand generations. And we see this in contracts all the time. If you if you sign any kind of contract, just go somewhere and buy you know, a refrigerator or a warranty uh, on your refrigerator or something, you'll see some there, a uh, provision in there, usually about successors and assigns that the warranties either extend or don't extend to your successors, heirs, and assigns. So covenants are interwoven in our law and in our social relations everywhere. And the point is this, that covenants are inescapable. And the question for us as Christians should be, why is the concept of covenant inescapable and necessary to our cosmology? And why is understanding the concept of covenant important to faith-filled politics? So remember last week we were talking about faith-filled politics. And we can be very moralistic, but we may not be practicing in a faith-filled way what we're doing in our politics. Now, I, I doubt we're going to get to all those questions I just mentioned there today, but we certainly want to get to why is covenant inescapable to a biblical cosmology. And let me just suggest, if you've got some books on Christian worldview, um, you know, some of the uh, more popular ones, you know, uh, see if it mentions covenant in there. It's it's liable to talk about God. It's liable to talk about God provides the ordering um, foundation for, for all things, but covenant will be missing. Oh, and it'll explain how, because of our belief about God, you know, we think uh, free markets are better than fascism, and uh, there's a certain way of looking at education and so on and so forth. But but see if it talks about covenants anywhere. And if not, be asking yourself, hmm, wonder why when the concept of covenant is interwoven in everything? <laughs> a good question, I think, to ask. In other words, what I'm going to say to you over the next few minutes is that covenant is to a biblical cosmology what common law is to the Constitution. You've heard me say it a lot of times on here. If you don't understand common law, your understanding of the Constitution is incomplete and will eventually go wrong. And the same, I believe, is true of biblical cosmology and covenants. If you don't understand the place and role of covenant, and it's not part of your biblical cosmology, then your biblical cosmology is incomplete. And at some point, your soteriology, your eschatology, and how you order society and think of law, your ethics pertaining to those things, they're going to go askew. And, and why will they go askew? Because our ethics, which informs our law, is the predicate for our law and informs how we practice politics, or at least the way we do it, let's say, is predicated on and derived from our cosmology. So a wrong cosmology produces a wrong ethic, which produces wrong law and a wrong way of doing politics and 
in a wrong way of ordering your society. Now, for why this is so important, I want to turn today to A.W. Pink, Arthur Walkington Pink, who lived from 1886 to 1952. And um, he wasn't very well known during his lifetime, but it was said that he became one of the most influential evangelical authors in the second half of the 20th century. And he wrote a book that you can find at monergism.com called The Divine Covenants. And I'm going to be reading from some of it uh, today to talk about why this is so important to our cosmology. So I'm going to begin with this statement by Pink in the introduction to his book. Salvation through Jesus Christ is according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23. And he was pleased, Pink writes, to make known his eternal purpose of mercy. That's an eternal purpose of mercy. It wasn't thought of after there was a fall. He understood there would be the fall. He planned ahead for the fall. God doesn't learn anything from things outside of himself. His knowledge is complete and whole within himself. He's not dependent on externalities to learn anything. So he was pleased to make known his eternal purpose of mercy unto the fathers in the form of covenants, which were of different characters and revealed at various times. And this is what's important about what he then says. These covenants enter into the very nature and pervade with their peculiar qualities the whole system of divine truth. And as we've been speaking in recent weeks and over the last year, the whole system of divine truth must include one's cosmology or it is an incomplete understanding of the divine truth. So one of the things that helps illuminate a bit further, what Pink was saying, is found in a book by Sinclair Ferguson entitled John Owen on the Christian Life. And here is what Ferguson wrote, quote, During the 16th century, covenant theology came to be regarded as a key to the interpretation of Scripture. See, that's what, that's what Pink was saying in the 20th century, that it it's key to the whole interpretation of divine truth. And during the 17th century, a key to the interpretation of Christian experience. So not just the objective, but also the subjective. We've talked a lot on this podcast in the past about objective and subjective theology. So covenant theology pertained to both. It brought with it a fresh insight into the unity of Scripture. This led, in time, to a doctrinal scheme in which God's dealings with his people through these covenants formed the pattern for understanding his dealings with us now as individuals. Now, what he's referring there, Ferguson, in this pattern, is he's referring to what uh, was called by theologians as the history of redemption, or explained in the Latin as the Historia Salutis. We don't talk much about the history of redemption. We don't talk much about the Old Testament 
to be honest, uh, in, in a lot of churches anymore because it's just not as relevant as the New Testament and the New Covenant, and we're going to talk about that for just a moment. This idea of the history of redemption, or the Historia Salutis, was distinguished from the Ordo Salutis, which was simply the idea of the order of salvation, which addressed questions of what came first. Was it faith or regeneration, and where did conversion fit within faith and regeneration? That was the order of salvation, how all our salvation um, came into being, I guess you could say. Now, Pink then goes on and continues after he said it, it's key to the whole system of divine truth. He says these covenants have, quote, an intimate connection with each other and a common relation to a single purpose, being, in fact, so many successive stages in the unfolding of the scheme of divine grace. Now, what is he referring there to? Just think of the Apostle Paul and how often he talks about the revelation of this mystery and making clear the final revelation of this mystery of Jesus Christ and Christ being the hope of glory in you and that the the salvation would go beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. See, all of that was being worked out over time in the history of redemption, and Paul talks about them in his epistles to the Ephesians and the, and the church in Colossians. Then Pink adds this, which I think is a beautiful insight. They, referring to the covenants, treat the divine side of things. So, in other words, just like creation is revealing the glory of God, putting it in picture book form for us, what we couldn't otherwise understand, he's saying these covenants are revealing and declaring, imaging forth the divine side of things disclosing the source from which all blessings come to men. Now, that's a very strong statement. Because to be honest, we don't really believe that anymore. I just read a tweet from a Christian organization that's trying to make their way into Tennessee politics. And man, they were giving thanks to every Republican and the Republican Party rather than to God. So the things they were seeing as blessings. They, they didn't come through God's covenant and his faithfulness to his covenants. They, they came through the Republican Party. I'm sure God, God really appreciates that. And these covenants make known the channel, Christ, Christ being the channel through which they flow to them. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Republican Party. Oh, no, that's not true. It comes from God, and it comes to God because Jesus was faithful to what Pink calls the eternal covenant. The reality for me, my friends, is I had never heard of the eternal covenant, and sometimes other words were used to describe it, the covenant of peace, the everlasting covenant. But the reason covenants are are fundamental to our cosmology, to our society, and to our law is that there exists a covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the creation and redemption of the world. And we don't talk about that, but it's there. The covenants, Pink said, 
set forth the great design of God accomplished by the Redeemer of his people. The covenant is the foundation from which proceed all the gracious works of God. Then Pink makes this statement, which is um, flabbergasting, having never really understood anything to do with covenants and covenant theology other than I thought, okay, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant, the New Testament is Jesus, and that's kind of all uh, I was uh, uh, allowed to know, I guess you could say, or all that uh, pastors thought I needed to really know. Uh, but here's what he says. Here's what, here's what Pink says. A true knowledge of the covenants is indispensable to a correct presentation of the gospel. For he who is ignorant of the fundamental difference which obtains between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is utterly incompetent for evangelism. Now, I'm not going to take time today to get into the covenant of works, but it's not just the Old Testament and the mosaic polity of the Ten Commandments. It's a different conception of things. That's what I used to think the covenant of works was, but that's not. But let's let's move on through what he's, he's still saying here, that if you don't understand the concept of covenants, you can't really give a correct presentation of the gospel. But he adds this. But by whom among us are the different covenants clearly understood? Referring to them to the average preacher, and you at once perceive you are speaking to him in an unknown tongue. Few today discern what the covenants are in themselves, their relations to each other, and their consequent bearings upon the design of God and the Redeemer. Since the covenants pertain to the very rudiments of the doctrine of Christ, ignorance of them must cause obscurity to rest upon the whole gospel system. Now, I don't know if you see that in the books that you read about having a biblical worldview and how to distinguish between the right and wrong of various things taking place in our culture. But he's saying you, you don't get the gospel system. You don't understand what the law of faith is about if... You don't understand this idea of covenants. Now, why is it that this has been such a problem? I know I mentioned the idea of covenant to a friend of mine in, um, in a different um, denominational tradition, and boy, there was a great flare-up. And the idea that is that, well, there can't be a covenant between God and man because covenants would imply that there's equal bargaining power between man and God to come to an agreement. Now, that is indeed how we tend to think of, of, of covenants. I've got a piece of property, you got money, and we're in an equal bargaining position, right? And so we come together, and man would never be equal to God to be able to say, okay, God, I'm going to do this stuff, but you have to promise me this. And God says, well, no, um, I'll promise you this if you'll do this. No, no, I won't. You see, and you go back and forth and negotiate like you would on a price of a house or a car. But and then and so it's kind of like, well, we can't have, we can't believe in a covenant between God and man. Well, what we've done, I believe, is that we have laid onto the top of Scripture modern conceptions. Of agreements and earthly conceptions of agreements on what the scripture actually says. Now, in this regard, let me read you what Sinclair Ferguson said in this regard about covenants and 
the way we normally think of covenants. He said that Owen realized the difficulties involved with the idea of covenant because his readers, he knew from everyday experience, had a contemporary understanding of the word covenant. It was a contract made between two parties when they entered into an agreement. But he warned his contemporaries that biblical covenants do not always involve precisely the same elements. Biblical covenants must be interpreted in their biblical context, not their 17th century context. So, in other words, when we come to Scripture, and this is true all the time, we can't take what we see in the newspaper, and we can't take modern conceptions of words and superimpose them on the text of Scripture to say that it must mean what we now think that term would mean. So, for example, with the word covenant, the word covenant is actually used by God with respect to um, the sun and the moon and the planets and all of that. You read that in Jeremiah. I think I've quoted it before, that if you can break my covenant with these things, then you can break my covenant with my people. Well, obviously, God didn't sit and negotiate, you know, with those aspects of the physical creation, you know, um, because God imposed those on them. And and the covenant is actually God's gracious imposition. He used that word uh, guardedly and cautiously of blessedness upon mankind. It's not a negotiated deal. The covenant is a great blessing. And and I think I'm just going to have to close here this week. I'm not getting as far as I'd hope to get, but I hope this is is uh, meaningful to you as I close with this thought from Bavik on why covenant is such a gracious thing, a, a gift from God, not a negotiated agreement. And it changes the whole understanding of covenants between Christians, in marriage, between um the magistrate and the subjects, but listen to what Bavik says. Bavik, after explaining that we see covenants throughout our own experience, says, It should not therefore surprise us that the highest and most richly textured life of human beings, namely religion, bears this character of covenant. And then he explains why, and why it is such a gracious gift and blessing from God. First of all, Bavik writes, because God is the creator, man a creature, and with that statement an infinite distance between the two is given. No fellowship, no religion between the two seems possible. There's only difference, distance, endless distinctness. If God remains elevated above humanity in his sovereign exaltedness and majesty, then no religion is possible at least no religion in the sense of fellowship. Now, of course, we've talked about the fact that because God's triune, he's personal. He has fellowship. He would want to then have fellowship with his creatures. But because there's such a distinction and difference of infinite magnitude between God and the creator, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, well, uh, fellowship just wouldn't be possible, he's saying. He continues, if there's not a covenant, he says the relation between the two between God and the creature, is exhaustively described in terms of master and servant. 
then the image of the potter and the clay is still much too weak to describe that relation because clay has existence and hence rights independently of and over against the potter. But human beings have nothing and are nothing apart from God. Accordingly, if there is truly to be religion, if there is to be fellowship between God and man, and if the relation between the two is to be also, but not exclusively that of master to his servant, of potter to clay, as well as that of a king to his people, a father to his son, or a mother to her child, of an eagle to her young, of a hen to her chicks, and so forth, that is, that is, if it's not just one relation, but all relations and all sorts of relations of dependence, submission, obedience, friendship, love, and so forth among humans find their model and achieve their fulfillment in religion, then religion must be of the character of covenant. For then God has come down from his lofty position, condescended to his creatures to impart, reveal, and give himself away to human beings. Wow. That, he says, this set of conditions is nothing other than the description of a covenant. And so, without covenant, in other words, we're nothing but in a master-servant relationship. There can be no fellowship, no friendship, no communion, no blessedness. And we could die and return to the dirt, and God would have done us no injustice. Instead, he holds out to us eternal life and fullness of joy in his presence and pleasures evermore. So next week, we're going to pick this theme up and we're going to talk about why has this been lost and the consequences of the loss of covenant to our culture. And I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.